Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome back to A House on Fire, the limited podcast series brought to you by Spectrum's Adventist Voices and by Adventist Peace Fellowship's Adventist Peace Radio. How's that for a mouthful? We really appreciate the support of those two organizations in getting this podcast out there. And my name's Nathan Brown, and I am the book editor at Science Publishing just outside Melbourne, Australia, and also the co-editor of the titular book, A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. My co uh, presenter, co-host today, is also the co-editor of that book, Dr. Murray Jackson, Associate Professor of Practical Theology at HMS Richards School of Divinity, La Sierra University, Riverside, California. How's that for a handle? I think I got it all right. You got it all. You got it all correct. <laughs> Thank you. Good to be with you, everyone. That's cool. And our guest on this episode, which as those of you who have been following the series so far, we're talking to different contributors to the book A House on Fire. And our guest on this particular episode is Claudia Allen. Hi, everybody. It's so good to be with you. Now, you need to give us your rundown bio because it's a quite, <laughs> a, it's quite a handle as well and I don't have the practice with it. So tell us your um, title, position, where you are in the world. Yeah. Yeah, so I am a community outreach supervisor for the Howard County Office of Human Rights and Equity here in Columbia, Maryland. And I am also a volunteer lay pastor at the Emmanuel Brinklow Seventh-day Adventist Church. Very cool. And you're based in Maryland? Yes, sir. Cool. Now, you were recently in Australia, which was an exciting thing, and it was great to have you. And the joke that we had in, we actually had the opportunity to co-present on a couple of occasions yeah. was that of all the contributors to A House on Fire, you and me were the least qualified. <laughs> yes, we said this multiple times. Then <laughs> Dr. Jackson not shaking so, his head. Not so, not so, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yes. Not at all. Yes, Nathan and I were, Nathan and I were like, hey, you know, of all the people in this book, you all are stuck with the two PhD dropouts. Uh, and we apologize <laughs> in advance uh, for the lack of quality and substance that will <laughs> come as a result of those decisions. <laughs> That's it. In fact, in, in fact, the reason people with terminal degrees may not be happy is because you show equal quality. <laughs> <laughs> without, without the certificate there you go it makes us wonder should we have gone the rest of the distance no <laughs> quality work quality work thank you thanks so much that's that was just a, I, it's partly a joke but it's also partly a recognition of the quality of contributors we have right across the, yeah. the Absolutely. book when out of our 20 or so contributors that Two of us are people without doctorates. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, anyway. I won't, I, I think we are, you know, kind of making a joke about it, but I really did notice it a very long mm. time ago. Um, and I really did feel honored that you all, 
even asked me to contribute. I could really kind of understand Nathan because Nathan is such a prolific writer and he's a book publisher and he's, you know, part of, you know, one of the major contributing editors on the project, but I'm the only one asked to contribute that does not have a doctorate. And so I was really kind of moved and um, really grateful that you all um, found my voice uh, quality enough to include among such a prestigious list of of Adventist academics, truly. Claudia, I said it, well, before we started, but I'm going to repeat it here. <laughs> I have just reread for, I don't know how many times, we've read it several times just in the re- review and, and pre- preparation. I've read it a couple of times since the book has come out, but I just reread your chapter again. And like the Bible, each time I come back, I find something new and enriching. And it was it was a delight. I, I mean that in it. And I'm certain others will find it the same way. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. There's the pull quote for your, you know, your um, social media profile. I know, right? Claudia Allen writes like the Bible. <laughs> Dr. Murray Jackson, La Sierra University. That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Thank uh, you very so cool. Now, there, there, you also have another claim to fame in this particular project, and that was that you were the first person to say yes out of all the people oh, we asked. Oh, yeah. Right. That's right. Because you just That's got true. back straight away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the email must have just hit you and then you just hit re- you know, reply. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you were also one of the first chapters that we received. Um, when we were getting submissions. Now, there's, firstly, why did you have it so ready to go? Because there's a story there, I think. Yeah. Uh, but then after you tell us the backstory to your particular chapter, then um, I have a question for Maury about, you know, this was the first glimpse we had of what the book might be. So, mm. you know, that's something significant too. So, Claudia, first, you know, why was it in the in the oven already? Listen, so... During this is like 2020 um, Mm. and things are kind of just popping off with George Floyd. And so I had been on several panels. People were calling me nonstop, um, even internationally to do whether it was like podcast interviews or to present or preach um, on these kinds of topics. And so one fundamental question I kept getting was, you know, Claudia, why do you keep asking us to focus on or talk about social justice issues? Shouldn't we just focus on mission and the three angels messages? And so I was, I was like, thank you so much for this question. I've got an answer. I would give people this answer, but I hadn't like really sat and like wrote something out. And so uh, someone called and they were doing a virtual revelation series and um, so they reached out and said, hey, Claudia, you know, can you preach, you know, within our Revelation series? I said, sure. And they were like, you know, which chapter in Revelation do you want? I said, I need Revelation 14. And so he was like, OK, you got it. And I just like went and was just reading. I was studying. I was researching and I was really trying to pull something together um, that would reframe our understanding of the three angels messages. And I won't go fully into that. I'll just stay with the backstory and then we can go deeper into that later. Like, but I think the main thing was by the time I finished preaching this, um, maybe like 
it wasn't even a full week. I can't remember at this point, but it was a few days later um, that Nathan emailed me and said, hey, um, can you participate in this? And I think the, the wording that he originally had was, you know, we want to do this book on like an Adventist response to uh, like race and racism or something like that. And I was like, he was like, do you have anything, you know, new that you're working on or anything like that, that you feel like you could contribute to a conversation like this? And I was like, you are not going to believe this, but I just <laughs> preached this sermon on the three angels messages as a response to race and racism. I was like, let me rewrite it. Like, let me rework it and, and send it to you. So yeah, I had already kind of had something cooking and because my sermons, what most people don't know, my sermons are really essays because I'm a, I'm a lit person, you know, a PhD dropout to begin <laughs> before <laughs> I'm a preacher. So, um, it was just a matter of taking the sermon and rewriting it in such a way that it would have a different experience for a reader versus what someone experiences when they hear me like orate it. So I was really just kind of um, reworking paragraphs, finding new language, better des descriptors, um, you know, really in including more research in ways that it was that was not there. And yeah, and then kind of sending that and then, you know, knowing, trusting that, you know, Nathan's a, a great editor, he would make me sound smarter than I than I actually am, you know, so. <laughs> That's the no, joke. <laughs> this is good. Nathan, can I just real quick? So mm -hmm. what, what I'm hearing you, Claudia, say is that um, there were certain voices that thought you could bifurcate mission from the discourse that you were engaged with as an Adventist Christian. Absolutely. And it seems like your work is to say, actually, they're not bifurcated. This is what mission looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And and if anything, like I, I was fundamentally wanting to teach the Adventist church that our primary doctrine or like our primary message, which is the three angels message, um, is, is not only not separated from social justice, but it's actually fundamental to social justice. And um, I just really praise God for the way the Holy Spirit was illuminating that thing to me. Um, because, and I also praise God for where I was ministering and and the, the pastor that I was sitting under at the time. I was at, which I still am, I was at Brinklow and uh, Dr. Anthony Medley was a senior pastor at that time. And um, I had really kind of been sitting under his tutelage and teaching since um like you know 2019 and he loves the book of revelation and just is like a an amazing teacher of the word and he he teaches you how to ask different kinds of questions about the word so like early 2019 i was at prayer meeting with with doc medley and he we were going through the book of daniel and like he was causing us to teaching us how to ask different questions of daniel so that by the time i was studying revelation with him um, I had already begun asking myself questions like, well, why are, you know, like he asked this question of Daniel, I think it's Daniel seven. Why are there, why are the Egyptian dynasties and the Asian dynasties, you know, like not mentioned, you know, in, in Daniel seven, uh, like, like, like who got to kind of like determine which 
powers were recognized, right? And it's not to say that there ever is an answer um, that you can find um, apart from this is what the spirit revealed. However, it does, it just makes you read scripture differently. And so the question that came to me when I was studying Revelation 14 was, how is it that uh, persecution and last day persecution as relates to, to the three angels messages is always about um, Sunday blue law and Adventists inability to go to church on Saturday. And it takes absolutely no consideration of the persecution that has, that has, and is currently happening to Christians and Adventists globally. So how is it that we're not, the only reason we're not in the last days, or we're not at this, this, this point that with the beasts that revelation 13 and 14 teach us about is because like white Adventists can still go to church on Saturday. That just <laughs> fundamentally made no sense to me. And I was like, this, this is an illogical argument. There has to be another message or another way to understand what's happening in this text that has not typically been preached. And so I kind of went on that journey to kind of like really understand that. Cause I really wanted to reteach our church um, this message. Cause I think that one of the reasons why they have such a problem with me or they struggle so much to receive some of the things that I say is because of how they have been taught, whether it's revelation 14 or any other Adventist doctrine. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So Dr. Jack Jackson, my um, follow-up question was, so this was one of the first chapters we saw for this potential project. How did you respond to, you know, this might be a thing? Yeah, so I, you know what, Nathan, I don't know whether or not at the early part I was as transparent as I was feeling. So I'm going to go back to my original gut feelings. And uh, my original gut feelings were, <clears throat> this is okay, but I think Adventists focus too much on apocalyptic literature and not enough on prophetic literature. And my fear was this might not actually resonate in the in the context for those outside of Adventist Christianity. Now, that was my initial feeling. And, and uh, I mean, I resonate with what Claudia is talking about. I, I think, for instance, like oftentimes, for instance, when we think of uh, Hosea, the prophet, and in, in chapter 13, he's describing God saying, I will be a lion to you. I'll be a bear. I'll be a leper robbed of her cubs. I'll be a wild beast. And and essentially what Daniel is describing as these nations as doing all this, Hosea is describing, this is God doing this, right? And so sometimes this kind of apocalyptic literature uh, makes us think, well, let and Claudia hinted to it just now, let's, you know, we can wait until this thing happens before we can know, well, we're now at the end time and we're missing injustice all around us. So my mm -hmm. first inclination was, mm, I don't know. <laughs> and then as I began to read, I said, okay, she is appropriating these passages in ways that I think will not only speak within our communion of Christian faith, but also speak beyond it. And it has proven to be so. In fact, in one of the classes, that two of the classes I'm teaching, at the university, I'm teaching at satellite campuses 
where the majority of our students are actually Christians who are either Roman Catholic or non-denominational. In fact, there's only one Adventist Christian in the in in those two classes. And and as we have been doing uh reading through through the text here, I'm getting kind of a response from people who are outside of the Adventist Christian communion, a part of the larger Christian communion, and appreciating a kind of pedagogical educational development of the relevance of of this message within their own faith com- community. And so uh, Claudine has done a great job uh, both resourcing some of the challenges Catholic Christians have had in the past with certain of their bishops and and helping them to be aware and self-critical within their own communion of faith as we have tried to be both self-critical within our communion of faith. How do we appropriate these messages? So in the end, uh, yeah, I think my initial skepticism was overcome by the the content and the development. Uh, and I, I thank you, Claudia. Oh, there. Wow. That's amazing. That's cool. Yeah. I, th- I think too that Dr. Jackson, I've, whether it's the preaching or my, even my writing, my publishing, I do not want to ever exclusively write to Adventists. Um, because I, I, I agree with you. I think that there is, there's gotta be something to say where we are kind of entering into a larger conversation where we have the opportunity to kind of come outside of our bubble. Um, and I think like I definitely, because that's my framework, I think I approached the chapter in that capacity as well was like, okay, how do I have a conversation about the three angels messages that reframes and reworks what we've done incorrectly in Adventism, but also shares the three angels messages in such a way that if you are not a part of the Seventh-day Adventist community, you are hearing an interpretation of this text that you also can apply, receive, uh, and and understand. So I I appreciate uh, kind of like hearing and knowing that feedback that, that, the intention behind that writing it in that way, it, it, it is trans, it is being, you know, understood in that capacity. Yeah. In, in fact, Nathan, if I could just uh, add this, this uh, point, there was kind of a theme in and uh, kind of a, a motivation in the compilation we drew together, namely like uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote about uh, Christianity come of age. Uh, we, we were kind of, writing about Adventist Christianity mm-hmm. coming of age. For him, it was coming of age into a secular world. For us, it's coming of age into a broader conversation of Christians and people of faith in the larger world. And so, no, without a doubt, this had that trajectory. Wow. Hmm. So one of the things that you bring in, in the within the larger context of race and racism and talking about these things is you draw on uh, Wilkinson's work on caste. How does that fit with our conversation of race and racism? And because I think you are the one person who said the most about that uh, in this collection. Yeah, give us the, give us the short run on that. Yeah. So after I read Cast, um, my mind was blown. First of all, I have specialized in um, the demonic critical race theory uh, before I left, and so 
I am fully aware of all of the arguments, fully aware of all of the things. And I knew that color casts existed in other countries around the world. However, uh, Wilkinson actually demonstrates that caste in other countries is more than just a like a cultural color system. Like some have tried to espouse it as, oh, like if you go to, like I went to Tanzania and when I went to Tanzania, I was not considered black because I was not dark enough. I was not dark like the Sudanese where they say like their gums are black. It was only people that they consider to be black. Um, so because I am this fair skin kind of caramel, uh, colored sister, they consider me white. And then also coming from the States probably didn't help me either. And so that, I, that's kind of how people tell you what color cast is around the globe. What Wilkinson's book really does is show you that cast is a system that is operating differently in different countries. It, it, like there are legal systems attached to color casts, um, depending on the country or continent that you find yourself on and reading cast and hearing that the Nazis fundamentally patterned the third Reich after, uh, Southern America was mind blowing to me. And the fact that, that the Nazis were in Germany, like why is there a world war against us for what we are doing to the Jews? And there is not a world war against the Americans for what they are doing to blacks is mind blowing to us. Like what is there? And she literally has, you know, like primary source materials of, of their writings and letters to each other. Why? Why is there no reaction? What is the American PR system that is allowing them to treat African-Americans in this capacity, but has caused the entire world to turn, turn against us for how we are treating um, the Jews? And so with that in mind, that for me said, this is the perfect answer to the Seventh-day Adventist church's constant belief that, and, and constant message that race and racism is a North American division problem. And every single time we try to have these conversations and say that we should be engaged in this, the response is always, well, we should focus on mission and we should focus on global mission. And global mission is not impeded by race and racism. It is only, you know, an issue in the United States. It's only an issue in North America. And um, caste, in my opinion, blows that completely out of the water. And I think part of why I also wanted to be a part of this project was because Nathan had espoused to me, Hey, we're wanting to get global voices on this conversation. And so I think what cast did was provide me with the theoretical language necessary to situate race and racism as a global systematic problem. Um, and therefore, uh, something that, uh, scripture needed to address and something that the Sunday Adventist church needed to commit to dismantling worldwide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you jump into, as you, as you've already mentioned, this kind of core text that is kind of the identity and mission statement of the Seventh-day Adventist church and has been, uh, for you know, a century and a half or more. Um, 
But you've done some different things with it. It's not your standard three angels message sermon that you'd get in an Adventist church near you. What what prompted you to think in that way? What were the things that, you know, were there other people that you drew on to get you thinking like that? Yeah. Was it simply, you know, you you know, giving it a shot and seeing what happens? You know, are you a mad mad theological scientist who's just <laughs> putting these things together and seeing what happens when, when you mix them? Yeah. Um, Right. It's a great image. I, I, I do think I am a mad theological scientist. I love that. I've never heard that. And I receive that in my spirit. I think the, the first thing that changed my mindset is, uh, when I got to Georgetown and was doing my master's in, in English there. And Georgetown is a Jesuit university, which means that there are individuals of every possible religious background that you could imagine. And so I would be in seminar classes where where we were discussing like the religious symbolism in, you know, Toni Morrison. And, you know, this one's an atheist, this one's an agnostic, this one's a Jew, this one's a Muslim, this one's Kojic, Church of God in Christ, this one is um, Seventh-day Adventist, and the teacher is Roman Catholic. (laughs) Um, And so it's like you get all those people around a table and say, let's talk about Ahab and Moby Dick, (laughs) you know, Mm. And, 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 and what people I think miss. And I don't want to say that I'm not saying this as like, um, boastfully I'm not, I have not gone to seminary, but I have been, I'd have received advanced training in the interpretation of text. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that is fiction, nonfiction, memoir, poetry, historic history. Um, when you've been, when you've received that kind of advanced training in the interpretation of text that includes sacred texts, like the Tao Te Ching, like the Quran, like the Bible, um, mm. and you receive a variety of literary approaches, that to say my mind exploded by the time I graduated from Georgetown would be a gross understatement. I was just mm. seeing with different eyes. And so once I was at Georgetown, I also got introduced to black theology, which is something we're, we're, we're going to, you know, continue to talk about together. But I was introduced to Dolores Williams and James Cone and many of these, these thinkers. So that now I was reading the Bible with a very different lens. Mm. And that was yeah. back in 2013, 2014. So you continue that training, you continue that reading. I'm a type of person that goes down rabbit holes. So it's like, if I find a book, I'm going to read the bibliography to figure out the book that predates that book or the book that comes after that book, you know? So then you just, you just, I've just filled myself with knowledge on these things so that once I got to 2020 and now found myself tasked with, um, coming to an understanding of the three angels messages, I was filled with a lot of non-Adventist philosophical, literary, theological, and social theory. That I'm sure probably frightens anyone listening to this podcast because their immediate (laughs) thought is, 
she is not approaching an interpretation of Revelation 14 from an Adventist theological framework. I did not go to Ellen White. I did not go to, you know, your your typical Adventist religious scholars. Though I did go to Dr. Renko. I mean, some people you don't leave behind. <laughs> so <laughs> Stefanovich, I've never met him, but there's just some people you just don't leave behind in the work. And so um, I think that that's what was able to, you know, kind of help me give me all the resources necessary to be able to approach this text faithfully because I am I'm committed to interpreting every biblical text faithfully. You might not like the interpretation, but it is always going to have a social component, maybe even a political component if you're dealing with me, but it is always going to be faithful to the text, the historical context of the text, the prophetic context of the text, the authorial context of the text. All of that for me is very critical in interpretation. And so I'm hoping that people see the amount of work and consideration of all of those things in the chapter, because I'm not trying to provide you with a superficial rant on the three (laughs) angels messages or a a superficial counter to um, our Adventist reading, but rather a very substantive perspective that points you in a, in a different direction and provides probably more context to the text and what it's meaning to say than we have received in the past. Mm. That's cool. And to be honest, that's my one of the things that I've brought to, and I even wrote an article some years ago, why do angels come in threes? And you've talked about the literary reading of this kind of text. And I mean, trebling in that kind of way is such a common literary motif, mm-hmm. you know, all the way from Goldilocks to the three bears to, you know, the three potential um, gentlemen in Pride and Prejudice. Yes, absolutely. You know, that, you, know, the synth- you know, the thesis, the antithesis and the synthesis or, you know, too hot, too cold, just right, however you want to look at that. Absolutely. And so how does that affect how you read a sequence of three angels? And, you know, so I do think that perhaps at times we under underplay the literary reading of the text. And, yeah, I mean, that's just a really simple example of the bigger work that you've done on this. Wow. No, that's great. And, and I think a part of the, the reason to go global and to go at union levels was to dispel the myth of an Adventist reading. Mm. Mm-hmm. See, in fact, wow. what we have are Adventist readings mm. in the same way that literary theories help us to understand that it's not looking for the interpretation of the text, but it's looking for an informed reading of the text. Yeah. Therefore, we're not saddled with one kind of tool mm-hmm. to be a, alert to how the spirit dances within a dead text to bring it back to life in our, in our worlds. And so, so in some, in some ways, it's the hope that if those who are listening to the broadcast here are also reading the text, they will now orient themselves to a, a faith tradition come of age. And mm-hmm. that would mean, I mean, you were at a Jesuit institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where you have a, a much more liberation context for Catholic Christian thought. Absolutely. Uh, 
But Catholic Christian thought is not all Jesuit, it's not all Franciscan, it's not yeah. all Augustinian or Benedictine. And Adventist come of age is, is learning how to be sensitive to multiple contexts of engaging the text uh, and in our lived context and seeing how is the spirit moving in this region of the world. And so, wow. so yeah, it was true to the spirit and intentionality of the text itself. Wow. But, but isn't that the beauty of Bible study? Right. Like like when we engage in Bible study, we we welcome this interpretive community to come together and share multiple informed readings. And when we're always engaging in Bible study, we always love what everyone is saying. And when every what everyone's saying is different, it's only when we go to church on Sabbath morning that we expect to hear the interpretation from the preached word. <laughs> and so now it's like, well, the preached is giving us the interpretation. But when we do Bible study, we are just, we're just talking. And it's like, no, like the preacher is also giving you a interpretation. And this is because it is a monologue, it is a um, uh, mon monologue. monologue it, there is no dialogue. But it, when, when we're in dialogue, we can respond to what a person is saying. You can say, hey, I disagree with that. Where do you, wh what my professor used to always say, where do you see that in the text? <laughs> you know, you can come in and say, you know, Nella, in Nella Larson's passing, I, I see an interpretation, you know, against affluent black people. And it's like, okay, but where do you see that in the text? <laughs> you're, you, you, you're just talking out the side of your face at this point. And I feel like there are so many times where we experience that maybe from the pulpit or from um, religious readings, whether they're devotionals or books or different things like that. And what we do is we receive the materials or we receive the preached word as the definitive interpretation rather than seeing it as a contribution to a conversation or even the spark igniting a conversation, which is why I think the project that is a house on fire is so great because it is fundamentally forcing people to say, you, you cannot read a house on fire and say, this is the interpretation. It fundamentally forces you to say, we are trying to spark a conversation. And what do you now have to say based on what you have read? I'm going to do a, sh a shameless plug here. So I did a, I did a, uh, my my master's in philosophy at Cal State LA, but I I wrote my thesis on the philosophy of the sermon, mm. and a part of it was to wrestle with the question of is preaching an irrational linguistic exercise because uh, the people sitting in front of you already believe, and people who don't would never be persuaded by the arguments that preachers put forth. Wow. <laughs> but <clears throat> one of the things I try to bring from that and teach homiletic students is that the sermon does not end the discourse, it begins. it. So yeah. if the people are not leaving and going to the homes to engage in a rich, pluripotent discussion around what was said, then you really, uh, it's, it was a failed communication event. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So recently I had the opportunity to, to interview you in a public setting, Claudia, and um, I kind of got to mess with you by um, informing you that um, the Vatican had recently rescinded, renounced the doctrine of discovery. Yes. 
Now, you also, this is another significant contribution that your chapter brings to this book is a discussion of the doctrine of discovery. Mm. And that's such a significant world-forming, you know, it it was kind of one of the things that really has shaped the modern world as we have experienced it for the last five or six centuries. Absolutely. Um, why is that important for us to be thinking and talking about? And what what's your thoughts on the fact that, you know, the Pope and his friends have now decided that actually that was actually pretty poor theology? Listen, I was shook when you said that. <laughs> and y'all, he did not give me no heads up whatsoever. <laughs> I was like, they did what? <laughs> um, so... I don't feel as though it is possible to have a conversation about um, American America's beginning, um, whether that is the extermination of the Native, Native American people or the enslavement of Africans, nor can you have a conversation about just the, the colonial project in and of itself without a conversation of the doctrine of discovery. Many people who are ill-informed attempt to have these kinds of conversations about colonialism and power and enslavement. And they try to suggest, because they have not read, that um, the, the, the Christian church participated in slavery um, <laughs> yeah. or they participated in these ills. Um, but the problem is that the Christian church initiated these ills on a global scale, which is what mm. has prevented a variety of Christian denominations from being able to articulate the necessary acknowledgments, apologies, etc., around the world. So for me, having a conversation about the global and eternal destruction of the colonial project and all of the consequences and, and, and wounds and brokenness that has, has resulted uh, from the colonial project meant providing that necessary history about, you know, 1452, uh, I believe yeah. it was uh, with, King Nicholas, I think the 10th or the Pope and in Portugal. This is the other thing. People often uh, wish to believe that Great Britain is the initiator of all evils, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, Great Britain did not initiate <laughs> all evil, right? This, this, this came out of Portugal. So, you know, what do we do when we're talking about Latin America, Latinos, Hispanics, and the multiplicitous experience that they have, as my friend Manny Artiega said, um, where many Latinos operate as both oppressor and oppressed. Um, like that is your, your multiplicitous makeup. And so I, I just feel like the doctrine of discovery provides us with a critical history that if we do not talk about it, we, we can't begin to make any kind of substantive change within our denominations. Mm. Ah, Manny was one of my students. Really? Oh, <laughs> I was on a panel with Manny in 2020. He is epic. This man, when he said this on that panel, I said, Manny. But it, it makes so much sense. It really, it really explains the 
just like the duplicitous conversation that many Latinos and Hispanics have to have when talking about their experience with oppression or their experience with race and racism or their experience with colonialism is because they, they sit in both seats in ways that others don't. So now I want to, I want to now do something and, and push back just gently. <clears throat> you have taken dominate domination. You have taken uh, colonialism. Yeah. You have taken racism and caste and scripture, mm-hmm. brought them all together in a in a in a very text and in a very passage of scripture that you have challenged syncretism. <laughs> very true. <laughs> okay, so now I just want you. I'm just giving you a chance to push back, and 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 Absolutely. that's right. Uh, Nathan has already called you the mad theological, <laughs> <laughs> mad theologian, right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and 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 listen, when I say this, I think all of us are doing it. Yeah. But but as you, what is the principle that underlines your pulling together all of these strings? So that uh, it's not eclecticism, right. uh, which is on one end, just a hodgepodge or syncretism on another end, or maybe syncretism is inevitable. Hmm. This is such a great question. Um, wow, that's such a great question. Let me m- motivate it just a little more when I say that. Please. We all seem to have different stories that run into us at the same time. Mm-hmm. We have our Christian narrative on the uh, on the one hand, yeah. and then we have our cultural and national narratives and histories on the other. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, when we when we swallow them down, the kind of expression of our faith uh, might come across as heretical, or it might come across as the most authentic movement of the spirit. But it seems like there's always this kind of syncretistic engagement. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, um, man, there is absolutely a danger to syncretism. Right. And I and I write that in the text and in the chapter as I actively do it there. This is my process. This is probably what I can say. So based on different things that I have read, typically when I approach things I approach it from uh, Christ first, and then everything has to funnel through like the person, the nature, and the teachings of Jesus. It does not have to funnel through Adventism, not for me. Um, And so if there are other ideologies and perspectives that are not Adventist that support the nature and teachings of Jesus, then I include them. And I think that that is where, that's my boundary line for how I do it. And and so that is how I am able to say, well, okay, I'm reading this thing from Nietzsche or, you know, Sartre and, 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 uh, and even James Cone. And um, I'll say, okay, like this, I agree with. This I do not, and so here is this this concept that helps us to better understand the nature of God and the the mission purpose um, of Christ in the earth, 
And this does not aid or support that. And so I do not hold it. I also am of the perspective though, doc, and this, you can tell me if I'm wrong because you know, I was only in the English department. You, you were in the philosophy and the religion department. So you can tell me if I'm wrong. I, I am of the persuasion that religion exists on a spectrum, which the, the, let me preface the practice of religion is done on a spectrum. So people will practice and believe their religious worldviews in a variety of ways, which is why you have a practicing practice of Adventism in very different capacities. I mean, even if we just looked in the United States, white Adventists practice their Adventism very differently from black Adventists. And that goes even further, you know, the more conservative you are, or if you go to certain regions in the States, you know, different things like that. So because I am of the perspective that these kinds of things exist on a spectrum, I think that's also what helps me to kind of like pick and pull what works and what doesn't. I don't know if that's right, but that's, that's the process. I, I think of what, with what you said, I think of one, one class I was in when I did a part of my undergraduate was at Oakwood and I finished it last year. But I remember a class where Dr. Mervyn Warren said to us, he said, uh, listen, some of you think, and this will speak to an Adventist, an older Adventist audience. Uh, <clears throat> some of you think when the shaking comes, everyone will be shaken out of the church who don't hold on to the pillars of diet and right. spirit of prophecy and, and all these other dress reform, et cetera. He said, when the shaking comes, everyone will be shaken out who don't, who holds on to anything but Christ, mm. right? This idea that, 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 that the center of what should yeah. be the heart of Adventist Christianity is <clears throat> the Christianity part. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So I think you have a good principle there. <laughs> I yeah. yeah. Any anything and that I don't, and I don't think it's arrogant. I think actually the arrogance is the person who doesn't believe there's some eclecticism. The, the person who believes they've purged it all through out of their theology. There's a either a willful blindness yeah. or maybe a hubris. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I have to. I cannot reject my bias and my bias is that I was trained in the interpretation of literature by uh, basically atheists. Like there's a joke that English departments are anti-God. <laughs> it's a running joke, right? And so because of that, most English, particularly if you go to like a Georgetown or a Maryland, which is where I was primarily trained, you know, like when I want to bring these kinds of things up in a text, these, these are not, these are, this is Claudia, this is not Bible study. We, we don't care about why, why Ahab, we don't care. We don't care about any of the, the scriptural relevance that is in, um, Moby Dick. Whereas I'm coming from the perspective that you actually can't even understand um, what the author is trying to convey without an exploration of this. And so I, I agree with you. I, I have to accept like my bias is that I was trained by um, individuals that are anti-God. And so the majority of my time spent in literature departments was proving to them, not just the existence of God, but the very explicit presence of God and religion in literature when that is the very thing they want to erase. And so because I'm coming from that kind of like a apologetic mindset, 
Um, I also approach my conversations with Christians and believers from the perspective of like, there is a scientific method to the interpretation of what has been written. And let us embark on that scientific methodological approach to come to an understanding of what needs to be understood. Yeah, I think one of the things there is simply that reading the text and reading the biblical text is such an important task that we should bring the best of our tools wherever we can find them. Yeah. And so for those who are trained in literature, that's that. For those who are trained in the original languages, that's really helpful too. For those who have really strong cultural sensitivities or justice sensitivities or whatever, all of those things should be important for making the most and making the best reading mm -hmm. of or the best readings, as yeah. we talked earlier, mm -hmm. of, of a text that we believe actually matters to us. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe not only of the text, but actually of the living human document. That's why mm -hmm. I love how Claudia opens mm -hmm. up. You know, we, we interpret... Uh, as as uh, uh, um, oh, I'm trying. G Charles Gherkin, a, a practical theologian, talks about the re reading the living human document. Mm. We we read the dead text. What about the living text? And you you open it this way: a race is an opportunistic fiction, a story composed for the purpose of justifying the enslavement of African peoples. Race is a novel written on the epidermis of every person causing melanin to serve as the text we are all forced to read. In other words, uh, I guess what I'm saying is uh, part of the motivation of the, t of, of the book again, and I think it's important, is to realize that reading texts are important, but reading the living human document is, is that, other, that other book uh, mm -hmm. that we, we have to attend to and not only to attend to how it looks in our natural manifestation, but how it organizes in our social uh, construction. And, and I found your, your chapter to be a, a delight, and I thank you so very much for it. No, thank you for um, drawing out that introductory line. That's, that's such a great, a great line. Um, and I think that yeah. it's true because I think the way, I think what we see historically with the Three Angels messages is that the way we read dead or written texts uh, determines how we treat people. Um, but it also is like, for me, the way that we read the human text, like you're just saying here also is determining how you treat people. And if we can, you know, be willing to understand that we are living lives in a constant state of interpreting information. And so you are in a constant state of interpreting nonverbal communication cues. Uh, you are interpreting what has been said to you, what you have heard, what you have seen, but then you are also actively engaging in interpretation based on someone's physical makeup that they either did or did not have control of expressing their, their very skin. And so what then uh, does it mean in terms of my life and my behavior and how I move in the world um, when I come to a real understanding of what my interpretation of someone else's skin color means to me? Um, and am I willing to go on a journey to read secondary materials that will help me to interpret this differently? 
In the same way, you can interpret a written text differently depending on the approaches and the secondary materials that you have been given, or depending on the interpretive community that you belong to, right? Um, that the same thing can be said for how we read and interpret one another, depending on the interpretive communities that we are a part of, depending on the materials and the media that we are consuming, all factors in uh, to how we read one another and ultimately how we treat one another. That is cool. We're, we're about out of time. I have one more question to throw at you, Claudia. Okay. So because this had its genesis as a sermon and you've since had the opportunity to proclaim it in you know, a variety of contexts, how do people respond to this? Ooh, great question. As a sermon, people are mind blown. I have had experiences where people have actually come up to me where they, they have had tears in their eyes because uh, and they've never heard the three angels message preached in this capacity. It's only been preached in person once. That was in Australia. Um, and so that was great to be able to receive the feedback in person. Um, the other feedback has been received, you know, virtually. Uh, but when I preached it virtually, I mean, there was a there was a Sabbath where I mean it was getting shared like everywhere, and I mean people were making comments, people were making posts because people were like, "You if you haven't heard Claudia's Three Angels Messages sermon, like you're missing out. Like you haven't heard the Bible. Like <laughs> you don't you don't know God if you haven't heard it yet." Um, and so I've, I've had a lot of positive uh, people really just saying like, "Oh my gosh, thank you for doing the work." to come to this understanding and, and, and being able to share this with me like this. I have also received negative <laughs> reactions, <laughs> right? So I've also gotten, um, she is a daughter of Satan. Um, she is Beelzebub. <laughs> you know, she is, um, you know, she, 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 what she is saying is heretical untruth, blasphemy. And so I also have to like kind of sit with and accept that um, not everyone is going to hear this and really receive it. Um, and that's okay. I don't take it personally. I just know that like everyone is on a, a, a different walk. And like, I, and like we kind of said before, they're, they're understanding and experiencing their Christianity in different ways. So. <laughs> well, at least now you have that statement, Dr. Murray Jackson, Claudia reads like the Bible. Claudia reads like the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now, now you can add, and like Jesus was charged with casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. <laughs> Indeed. Listen, Dr. Jackson, people were, Nathan and Dr. Jackson, people were literally texting and calling me like, hey, are you okay? Like, I saw this guy just call you Beelzebub on Facebook. Uh, like, how are you doing? <laughs> And I was like, yo, I'm good. They call Jesus Beelzebub. <laughs> like, I said, clearly I am doing something right. <laughs> if this is how people are responding to little old me. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but in, in all honesty, I think the thing that's difficult for people to receive, um, why it's difficult for people to receive this particular interpretation of the three angels messages that the, that the spirit gave me is because we are typically trained to view the three angels messages as a response to judgment for individual behavior. 
And so, because I, I did these sins, this is my judgment. And we are not trained to really think about judgment from a communal standpoint and the human familial standpoint. And the fact that judgment is not just about the fact that you lied or you, you stole, uh, but judgment is actually about the eternal destruction of systems that have exploited and oppressed people for economic and even militaristic gain. And um, our, our unwillingness to deal with those things and our, and our tendency to want to focus on individual behavioral modification is why we interpret the three angels' messages the way we do and why it's difficult to um, distance ourselves from that kind of an individual God, individual judgment perspective and come into this more communal um, interpretation. Very cool. Claudia Allen, thank you for being with us. You're so welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs> the homework from this episode, of course, is reading Cast is Fallen in Christ, reading Race in the Three Angels Messages by Claudia M. L. Allen from A House on Fire, How Adventist Faith Responds to Race and Racism. Thank you for talking to us about your chapter and for writing it and contributing to it. Um, to, yes, uh, you know, contributing to the book. We appreciate you being part of it and taking the time to talk with us today. Dr. Jackson, thank you also for joining in with our chat. Thank you, my brother. Thank you, Claudia. And uh, this has been A House on Fire, the podcast series, with thanks to Adventist Peace Radio and Adventist Voices. We'll catch you next time. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget.